Hello and welcome to the Oasis Church podcast. Thanks for joining us. If you've been around Oasis uh, for a, a few years, you'll know that in 2019 through to 2020, we started a series in the book of John. Now at this point, we're not now pressing play uh, to continue where we kind of stopped in March 2020, but rather we're gonna look at it through a lens of Jesus's invitation in John 10:10, where he says that he's come to bring life to you and to me, uh, whether we're in the room, whether we're online, whether we're watching at a different point, whether we know something of Jesus, when we think we know nothing of Jesus, that he's come in order that we could know life and life in full. And it's that that we want to look at because as we continue in the book of John, what we're going to discover is John begins to paint a picture of what that life in full looks like. John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you are going to go there again. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, 
yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odour, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the count of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jason Michelli is a Methodist minister in the US and someone who I've learned a lot from recently. He tells a story of a time when he was a prison chaplain in New Jersey. 
And one day he was complaining uh, to a volunteer inmate named Hector that all of the prisoners seemed to prefer the Pentecostal service over the one that he led himself. And Hector listened to Jason's bemoaning and looked at him with a pursed lip at one point, as if he was getting ready to say something that might just sting. They prefer those other services, Hector said, not because they're better necessarily, but because at those services there's no mistaking that God is real. At your services you always talk about how God is a loving God, but you don't much talk about how God is a living God. Hector continued, Reverend, we're all trapped in this prison and some of us are innocent and all of us are in hell. If you had to choose between a loving God who doesn't do anything and a living God who does, well, preacher, who would you rather listen to? You or those guys over there? I think that really dropped for Jason Michelli because let me tell you, there's no mistaking now that he witnesses to a living God. But whether you are an inmate in New Jersey or sitting in a church in South Street Harborn or, or logging online this morning from your home, we all need the same thing. Not just a loving God, but a living God. And so as we enter into the drama of the events that Becca has just read out for us from John's Gospel, I want us to imagine what it would have been like to actually be there. How wonderful. How terrifying. And I pray that today we realise that the living God who was in Bethany by Lazarus's tomb is the same living God in whose presence we are in right now. Anything can happen. The story starts with a message being sent to Jesus by his friends. The one who you love is ill. Now, when you read the Gospels, you really get the sense that some of Jesus' happiest and most relaxed moments were spent in the company of Martha and Mary and Lazarus. So this was news of great importance to Jesus. But he doesn't just get up and go. He delays for two days. And the disciples assume this is a safety first kind of a thing. After all, people in Judea want to stone Jesus. So... No good going back there. They're, they're okay with the decision. But Mary and Martha, they just couldn't understand it. Why isn't he coming? Why, why doesn't he answer? Doesn't he care? Why the delay? Do you relate to that at all? Have you ever hoped for something, prayed for something, really wanted God to do something only for seemingly nothing to happen? Just silence. Delay. I've known this many times. Even this sermon is two years later than it was intended to be when we initially planned our John series. Covid changed many things. So why? Why doesn't the hoped-for breakthrough always come? Well, we could spend a whole load of time exploring that question, and often it is just a mystery. We have a limited vantage point in life. Like trying to peer over a really high wall, we stretch and we strain and sometimes we just can't see what's going on the other side. God's ways are higher than ours, his thoughts higher than ours, his vantage point supreme, ours is limited.
And so we're often confused and sometimes disappointed and sometimes angry or upset. And Martha and Mary just could not understand the delay. But verse 5 and 6 tells us on this occasion what Jesus' purposes were in waiting. Did you spot it? It says, now Jesus loved Martha, her sister and Lazarus. So he stayed two days longer. Now this really is a mystery. He delays because he loves. You see, he has plans beyond what Martha or Mary could ever even have hoped for. Plans that would be for their good, but not for them only, also for the good of their disciples, and also for our good too, as we are now the recipients of their witness. You see, Jesus delays because more than Mary and Martha needed a change of circumstance. More than that, they needed a clearer sight of Jesus. More than anything, more than anything in the world, they needed him in all his glory. They needed to see who he is and have their whole outlook shaped by who he is. And so do his disciples. And so do we. This delay was about showing the sisters and the disciples and the gathered mourners and all of us who would hear their witness, show us all who he is, what he's like. So who is he? What is he like? Well, let's look at that together. See, what we see first of all is that he is full of compassion. He's the one who enters into our world as we know it. See, despite the protests of his disciples, Jesus does go to the sisters in Bethany at great risk to himself. But he doesn't sweep in like Superman, rip open his chest and perform a, a rescue operation over and above their heads. He enters in, he engages with their reality. Jesus listens to their disappointment. He allows them space to express their confusion. He weeps with them. He weeps. A man of sorrows, familiar with sufferings. He knows us. He knows us. He knows. And firmly, though ever so kindly, Jesus leads Martha and Mary to the proper source of hope. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, Mary, Martha says. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. Isn't that just such a, a vivid mixture of faith and doubt, of confusion and disappointment and hope all mixed in together? Isn't that so often where we find ourselves? I know it's where I find myself. Faith and, and doubt and, and, and certainty and disappointment and confusion and hope all mixed in together. Tom Wright explains that what Jesus goes on to do for Martha is to lead her from an if-only kind of thinking to an if-Jesus kind of thinking. 
You see, the sisters' heads were full of if-onlys. If only things had been different. If only the timings had been different. Have you ever found yourself with a mind full like that? If only I'd done this. If only I'd said that. If only I'd not done this. If only. If only. If only thinking can persecute our minds. For Martha, if only needed to become if Jesus. If Jesus is here, there's hope. If Jesus is here, everything changes. If Jesus is here, then I can trust God in this moment. And Martha's hope need not be focused on a doctrine located far, far away. There will be a resurrection at the last day. And that's what she's clinging on to. And what she said is, is true. But the location of her hope was not a doctrine, but a person. The person in whom all God's promises are fulfilled, Jesus. And he's not far, far away. He's come close. So close to her. Close to you too. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus, here and now, is the embodiment of all God's good promises. And he gives himself freely to all who want him. And he right explains that it is not just that Jesus came from heaven to earth, but that he has come from God's future into the present, into the mess and the muddle of the world we know. In him, in Christ, heaven and earth come together and God's future comes into our present reality, not as a mere theory, neither though, as an ongoing, uninterrupted experience, as we'll go on to talk more about later, but as a person, the person of Christ the Lord, God with us, the Word made flesh, the one who spoke all things into being, speaking here to Martha, and then calling her sister Mary. I love that verse, verse 28. Martha says to her sister, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. He's calling for her, calling her by name, calling Mary. In all her confusion and all her sadness, he's calling. Maybe you're confused, maybe sad. He's calling you. He is the compassionate one who enters into our world, bringing God's presence, God's promises. And here in Bethany, about to perform a sign that will point to God's future, even as it interrupts the present sadness of their experience. Who is Jesus? What is he like? Full of compassion. But also we see as the scene develops that he is full of authority. In verse 38 we read that when Jesus approaches Lazarus's tomb he was deeply moved. 
Now the phrase translated deeply moved here actually describes an emotion that captures indignation and even anger. Sometimes it's translated the snort of a horse, that kind of a feel to it. Bruce Milne explains that in Mary's grief, Jesus sees and feels the misery of the whole human race and burned with rage against the oppressor of mankind. He rages against sin and death that holds men and women in a fearful grip and corrupts God's good creation. And in compassion, he moves towards the tomb with an authority that must have been unnerving to the onlookers. Asking that the stone be removed, the faltering faith of Martha, like ours, responds. Bad idea, Lord, it's going to smell. Four days since Lazarus had died. And Jesus replied, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now, that's interesting. You see, all of those present at Lazarus's tomb were about to see a miracle, a dead man come to life. But not all would see the glory of God. Some would see in what Jesus was about to do only threat, threat to their lifestyle. They didn't want it. Their hearts were hard, but others would see what he was about to do as a sign, a wonderful and glorious sign of God's future interrupting the present and of God being revealed, his loving kindness on display in the living son of the living God. Calvin says that Jesus approaches the tomb like a champion who prepares for conflict. And there is power in his word, more power in one word of his than in all of the combined schemes and forces of sin and evil and death put together. Lazarus, come out, Jesus cries aloud. And from the darkness and the death of the tomb, Lazarus does walk out into the light of life. Can you imagine all who watched amazed, in awe, terrified? God is not just loving and compassionate. He is living and active among them. Notice, though, how throughout this whole story, Lazarus is silent and passive. Jesus does not issue an invitation at the edge of his tomb. Lazarus, would you like to get up? No, it's a command, and his word grants what it commands. Life to the dead, light in the darkness. So when Jesus speaks to you, calling you to himself, it is an empowering call, not a disinterested invitation. Would you like to come? He calls and he simultaneously empowers you to respond giving life. Lazarus walks out alive. But with the grave clothes still clinging to him. And there is something in that, something important for us to see there. You see, Lazarus will physically die again. 
But the sting of death has been altogether lost for Lazarus because he is in the grip of the loving, living God, almighty, compassionate God, who has called Lazarus to himself. And so the point of this story is not that whenever someone is dying, we should always expect them to be healed or raised. Of course, we can pray for healing, knowing that in Christ, all things are possible. Through him, God's future can become a present reality and at times will burst into our situations in healing and in breakthrough that serve as signs of the time that is to come. But miracles are not our hope. Jesus is. And all signs are given to enable us to see him better and hold fast to him in life and in death. He is the resurrection and the life. More than we need anything, we need him. And if you have him, you have life that cannot be stolen and his future will be your future. How? Well, you see, the raising of Lazarus set in motion events that would lead to Jesus' own death. And Jesus knew that. The earthly authorities were frightened of the supreme authority of the living Son of God, so they plot to kill him. But the hour of glory that Jesus spoke of was not the raising of Lazarus from the tomb. Rather, it was his being raised up on a cross to be given for the life of the world. Crucified, carrying on himself the sin of the world to take it away altogether. One man dying for the people, for the nation, for the scattered children of God, for you. As Caiaphas unwittingly prophesied, you see, the true events of Lazarus's restored life also serve as a sign of the condition of all humanity. Spiritually, we're all dead in our sins, as powerless as Lazarus in the tomb to produce life in ourselves. Sin clinging like grave clothes. And Christ has come for each of us that at his word we may live and be unbound. Tim Mackey points out that three times in John's Gospel, Jesus is said to cry out in a loud voice. The first in chapter 7, at the last day of the feast, when he calls all who are thirsty to come to him. The second here, at the tomb of Lazarus, when he calls the dead man to life. And the third on the cross, when having done all the work necessary for our salvation, he cries out in a loud voice, it is finished. The price has been paid in full. He for us, he has done it. Sins forgiven for me and for you. And three days after his crucifixion, Christ emerges from the tomb with not a hint of a grave clothes on him. For death has no hold on him. He has gone through death 
and out the other side, the firstborn from among the dead. Sin has been defeated entirely in Christ. He steps out as the beginning of the new humanity and Jesus proclaims, peace be with you. Death has lost its sting for sin is defeated at the cross. Look to him, your living God, your future, if you'll have him. Hear the word of Jesus to you, even now. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The living Christ is here with us now by his spirit. And he asks you the same question. Do you believe this? Whatever confusion or pain or doubt you may have, may the Spirit of God cause a response to his word to rise up within you, even now, that with Martha you may say, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who comes into the world. And may that revelation empower you to live without fear, to throw off the sin that so easily entangles, and to follow him all the way to the end of your days until he comes again in glory. Amen. Thank you.